and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Maggie Crowley. Maggie is the VP and Head of Product for Charlie Health, a startup that provides personalized mental health treatment for teens and young adults. Maggie is also an Olympian and has an MBA from Harvard Business School. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So I always love to start by hearing a little bit about people's journeys. And normally I ask for their journey into product, but you know, I'm fascinated by your history as an Olympian. I practiced an Olympic sport as well, although did not make it to the Olympics because my God, that's crazy. What sport? Figure skating. Oh, that's how I started. Yeah. And so how did you make the transition from figure skating to speed skating, right? Yeah. It all started when I was really little, when I was, I don't know, three or four, I just... All I wanted to do was be Christy Yamaguchi. So, oh, yeah, me yep, too. Yep. So saw her on the TV. That was convinced that's what I was going to do. Convinced my parents to let me learn how to skate. I was living in Maine at the time, and they froze our backyard, and I pushed around a little chair. And then my mother's Canadian, so we moved to Canada for a while, and I was figure skating. And then I saw all these people playing hockey, and they looked like they were having so much fun. So I switched to playing hockey for a while, and then I moved back to the U.S., uh, just outside of Chicago, and played hockey, but I was, you know, didn't have a lot of friends. I was a little bit bored. And my parents honestly saw an ad in the paper for a speed skating club. And I'd always liked skating. And so they thought, you know, hey, why don't you try that? You know, you're in middle school, you need more activities to meet people in this new city. And I just fell in love with it. I loved everything about it. I loved being a sort of individual sport athlete and got really lucky with timing, with coaches, had a good result at the Olympic trials in 2002. And thought, you know, what if I spent four years? Could I actually make the team? Could I really focus and could, you know, would it be possible? And so that's what I did. And I got lucky enough to make it happen. That's amazing. Yeah, your time in skating must have been very parallel to my own because I retired from competitive figure skating in 2001. So you you went just a little bit longer. Yeah, it wasn't at the time in Canada, it wasn't a joyous sport. It was very rote. There was a lot of sort of practices that you had to do. It just wasn't as much fun. And I was looking for something that was more fun. So that's that's what got me out of it. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, congratulations on Thank that. Um, that must have been an incredible experience to actually go to the Olympics. Yeah. So where were they when you uh, They were in 2006 in Turin, Italy. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was it was unreal. It was, a, it was a childhood dream, you know, a dream of really anyone of any age. And I'm so lucky and so thankful that my parents could support me and make that possible. And I think the the obviously there's lots of, you know, funny stories about the village and racing and all that kind of stuff. But I think for me, the best experience was being able to walk out. The flag bearer that year was a speed skater. So it was our team that was at the front at the opening ceremony. And being able to walk out in that environment, you know, with all the lights and the people screaming and, you know, being right next to the flag was pretty incredible. And I think probably my favorite memory from the whole thing. Cool. But then I had to get a real job. So here we are. (laughs) Exactly. You had to do something other than just that. And I imagine it was kind of a winding journey here as well. How did you, how did you get started? Yeah, I think like many people who don't know what they want to do in life, hadn't really thought that far beyond being an athlete. And unfortunately, speed skating is not a, a career where you can make a ton of money. So I went into consulting just because that's 
kind of what you do when you don't know what you want to do and you want to keep your options open and still feel employable. So I went into consulting. Um, I did HR consulting for a year. didn't love it. Switched, moved to New York, like lots of people in their 20s want to do, and worked at a, envi- a like boutique consulting firm that did environmental sustainability consulting, which was really amazing because the group of people were so smart and so focused and so mission-driven. And that was my first experience of a company where people were showing up because they cared about the problem they were solving, not just the work and having a job. And so that's something that is relevant for what I'm doing now because I always wanted to get back to a mission-driven environment. But consulting to me was only part of the the problem. Like you only got to see sort of the situation. You got to get a lot of data, interview a lot of people and figure out like a proposed solution, but you never got to, to actually do the work or see it happen or see the result. And I found that to be really unsatisfying because I you spend all this time coming up with an idea or figuring out what you should do or a strategy, and then you have to walk away. And you never know if, if anyone is going to do anything about it. So for me, when I went to business, I went to business school because I, again, I had no idea what I was doing and that seemed like a solid thing to do that would give me a little bit of time to kind of try some stuff out. And a roommate of mine over the summer when I interned at Google, I was in ad, just an ad partnerships and he was in product and he would come home from, you know, we'd ride the Google bus back to San Francisco together and he would talk about what he was doing. And I would sit there saying, wait, your job is so much more cool. Like you're doing all this cool stuff. And you know, what is this role that you're doing and why do you get to do all this cool consulting stuff, but then also come up with ideas. And he was a product manager. And so that was the, that was how I found out that it was even a job that was available. Unfortunately, I don't have an engineering degree, so I couldn't, I couldn't go back to Google as a PM and the, the fine folks at TripAdvisor took a chance on me and let me try it out. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So you transitioned over to product after being in ad partnerships and already having your MBA, right? Yeah, it was right out of business school. Yeah. So so what was your what was your experience at TripAdvisor like? It was amazing. I'm so thankful for that experience because I got for a couple of reasons. One, the leadership team, Adam Medros and Ravi and some others were so good at what they did and they were so thoughtful about the processes. And so I got to see, you know, what product can look like at scale. I was also part of a rotation program of a handful of other MBAs, and that was It was really special to be able to learn product alongside a group of other people who were in roughly the same position I was in. So I had people to go to to talk about, you know, is this how you're learning? Like, you know, what's your project like? And I thought that was helpful. And it gave me a way to to try out product at a big company for roughly two years. And I learned, you know, I wanted to go earlier. I wanted to go to a startup. I wanted to have more ownership and impact. And it was a nice sort of easy way to leave a job without kind of burning any bridges. So how big was TripAdvisor while you were there? I think it was, I could be completely wrong, but I, I want to say it was 3,000 people total. Mm, that is large to me. Mm-hmm. I know it's not large compared to like a Google, but. Right. Where I did feel it. At Google, I remember the first day of our internship, just walking into a room with like a sea of laptops and chairs and just realizing how big that company was and like how little I mattered. So yeah, I definitely wanted to go smaller. Yeah. So you mentioned that the leaders at TripAdvisor were really great at what they did. Can you tell me a little more about what made them so great at it? Yeah. I mean, they were really good at explaining how to do what they did. And I found they were really great at making sure that we had access to them and that we could see how they worked. We had, I think it kind of trailed off in the later years, but when I joined, we had this really intense product review meeting where you got to see them thinking about how do they think about what we should build? What kinds of questions do they ask? 
you know, how do they interact with one another, what matters to them. And that was something I was really curious about to see, you know, what, what does product leadership look like? And then at the same time, we would, we were all, of course, working on hiring. And I just have a couple of really vivid memories of being in a hiring panel review thinking about the new people we were going to bring on for the next class for the rotation program and hearing how they thought about experience and how they thought about interviews and what they looked for. And I just really remember one of them, and I I won't call them out on who it was, but one of them saying, you know, is anyone in this room willing to bang on the table and vouch for this person? And is anyone really, really excited? And, you know, it was the first time I heard someone be like, don't settle, you know, like hold a really high bar get excited about the people you want to work with. And that's, it's stuff like that that's really stuck with me from that experience. Okay. So where did you go from there? Like many (laughs) stereotypical MBAs, you know, two years of product, I'm sitting there being like, I could do this. Like I could do this better than you guys are doing this. You know, I want to go be a product leader. So I left and joined a really small restaurant tech startup and I was the second PM and then the other PM left and I was the only PM And realized really quickly that when you don't have anyone around you who's done what you're doing, you don't have anyone to learn from. And so I went out on my own and I found myself scouring medium, trying to figure out how people build product teams and how to think about building a product and, you know, even what I should be thinking about because I had seen it at scale, but I hadn't seen it at those early stages. And I just realized that I wasn't, that while I, I don't think I was doing a bad job, I certainly wasn't growing as fast as I wanted to grow. Like I didn't know what I didn't know. I was really clear that I was sort of out over my skis. So I, at the time I was in Boston, I wanted to stay in Boston. This was, you know, obviously pre-COVID and pre-remote work. So I looked around and I found the team at Drift to me seemed like the team of the best product people I could find in Boston. We're doing something interesting who had a lot of energy that they were scaling really quickly. And it would be the kind of team that I could join where, I would grow with the company and I would have more opportunities as the company got bigger. And so I just kind of threw myself at them and at Craig and David and Elias and was like, I don't even, I don't care what the role is. Just let let me in, let me learn and, you know, let me come in and learn from you guys. So that's where I went next. Great. And set the stage for us a little bit. Where was Drift at at that point in time? Yeah, I think I was employee number like 82, I want to say. They had just raised a series B really great product market fit. And it was on that sort of, okay, we're about to scale this thing like crazy moment, which is if you can figure it out as such a fun moment to join a company. So I joined and I was, there was maybe three or four PMs there and um, a VP of product. And we, you know, we're just kind of figuring out how we wanted to work. And I was the sort of more experienced PM hire who was supposed to come in and bring some structure uh, and some big, bigger company experience. And yeah, we just kind of figured it out as a team, did a lot of work on how we work, did a lot of work, obviously, shipping features really, really quickly. So I got a lot of reps and sets in, which was really valuable. And yeah, learned a lot about a new space that I, it was in sales and marketing tech, and I had never worked in that area. So it was really interesting to switch switch into SaaS and learn more about how that whole area of tech operates. So what was it like coming in as a person who was meant to bring some structure to an earlier operation? You know, all the challenges that you you think you would have joining a team that's already somewhat established, I definitely had. And I remember, you know, a little bit of friction with some of the other PMs uh, who would, if they listen to this, will laugh about it. And just a little bit of like, you know, what does this person know? You know, what is she going to bring to the team? But as with anything, I think I always view joining a team and, and whatever skills I have as like, 
I have a toolkit and some experience and let me see if that will be helpful to you in this ex- in this moment in w- with whatever challenge that we're all working on. And if it is, great. If not, cool. I'm going to learn and listen and learn and see how else I can help. So that was the attitude I took and I think it worked decently well. I mean, I'm still friends with all of those PMs. I think they're all amazing and I love them. So hopefully it worked out. Awesome. So I guess I want to poke you to be a little bit more direct. You said all the things that you would think, Mm -hmm. but what are those things? What would you expect? For someone joining a team? Yeah. I think in particular, my background, having an MBA, working in bigger tech company, you know, you'd think someone might be not scrappy enough. They might be too hierarchical. They might want to come in and assert dominance just because of their experience or because of what they've done in the past. And there's just friction. Anytime you get layered, even if it's not an actual management layer, but someone more senior joins, you know, the team has that question of, well, why not me? Why wasn't I promoted? You know, why couldn't I do that job? And I think it's really hard. It's a really hard thing to do to come in and layer someone or to come in as a more experienced hire. And you have to be really respectful of the work that came before you. And the thing I've seen time and time again is when someone like that comes in, there's this really strong tendency to, to say things like, oh, this product is broken or this is trash or you know we have to fix everything or it's all broken and you have no empathy or respect for the fact that that's the team that built that thing and built it to such a scale that you were willing to join the company. And so I, I always think about like honoring that work and making sure to respect it and build off of it and help move it forward rather than like being negative about it, which I think is a really, really easy pattern for a new person to fall into. Yeah. And I really like how you said honoring that work. And I think that's a really valuable thing to do. So tell me a little more about your journey there. How long were you at Drift? Yeah, I was there for almost four years and it was a wild scaling ride. I did so many things, good and bad. started a podcast, which was terrifying and probably my favorite thing that I did while I was there. I met so many smart people. We built so many products that were good, some that were not good. So really, I feel like had my kind of like coming of age story there because I, you know, went in with all these assumptions, knew I needed to grow. And then I grew in ways that I didn't even know you could grow as a PM. So yeah, I'm happy to dig into whichever, whichever bucket of experience, but I had basically like everything you could want in a product role. That's fantastic to hear. Sounds like that move really worked out for you. Yeah. I mean, I think when you join a startup, the promise is that you join and you, you should be able to scale with the company. And I remember we always talked about when a company grows really fast your trajectory as a person either can match that growth or you might grow faster than your company, in which case eventually you'll leave to go do something more challenging. Or honestly, the company will scale faster than you scale in your role. And then you may also want to leave. And so my, I remember David, the CEO, told me that kind of day one. And I sat down and this comes back to my sporting background. Anytime there's a really big goal, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I can do that. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one that scales with the company. And so I sat down being like, all right, I'm going to like, I'm going to hang on to this thing and I'm going to grow as fast as I can. So I went from staff PM to senior director. And that was, a, again, like a pretty aggressive path that I was on. But I really wanted to see like, what would it take to always be thinking about the next level? Like, what would it take to grow? What would it take to scale that fast? And so that's kind of the perspective I had going into the experience. So help us understand how much it scaled. When you joined, you said there were three or four other PMs. Mm-hmm. Uh, how? What was the product org like with it, at the time you left? At the time I left, the company was well over 500 people. So we went from 80 to 520 or 30. I don't remember exactly how many people were on the product team, but I went from you know being an individual contributor to running 
one of the, we had sort of three main products and persona based products. We had a marketer product, a sales product, and like an enterprise and admin one. So I ran our marketer product and had a couple of group PMs that reported to me and a bunch of PMs that reported to them. So yeah, I went from IC to manager to manager of managers. Mm-hmm. So that that's quite a journey in just a little under four years. Yeah. It was. So I'm guessing that in this case, you actually did get some mentorship inside the company and you were able to learn from people around you in addition to seeking information outside of the company. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what I tried to do was, of course, I think with anyone, if you're interested in in growth and especially fast growth, I had to figure out, I need to be good at the day to day, right? Like you have to do a good job at your job. You have to ship good products. They have to get out there. They have to be used by people. Like, obviously you have to do that. And then the other thing I thought about was just being extremely honest with my boss, Craig, who I had on the other podcast a bunch, just about where I wanted to go. And I had this hypothesis that after having seen seen people back at TripAdvisor, that the work that was being done at the product leadership level was really interesting to me and I thought would better fit the skills that I had. But I knew I had to like grind it out as a PM to get access to those jobs. And so I was trying to figure out like, how do I get through this hard part to the job that I know I'm going to be better at. And I, you know, there's a lot of things that are natural to product management that I don't, I'm not really super great at. And I have to really try really hard at, whereas the stuff that I'm doing as a product leader, I find to be like more natural for me. So I would just spend a lot of time talking to my boss about, okay, help me understand what you're doing. Like, okay, you did a strategy presentation. Like, can you take 10 minutes and walk me through that? Can I sit in on this meeting? Uh, Can I help you with those slides? You know, trying to find ways to, to get into the room, to observe and to watch. And then the other thing was honestly the podcast. And I think, you know, it doesn't make sense for everyone to do a podcast and it's a ton of work, but that gave me a way to speak to a bunch of people who were in the role that I wanted to be in. And of course I would have the show and then I would ask them questions and we would do whatever the topic was. But then when the show would end, I would always steal two, three, five more extra minutes and say, okay, off the record, I'm dealing with a situation. What would you do? Or how did you do this thing? You know, and I would get a little bit of extra advice. And I always found that that really helped me level up faster. And how many years into being at Drift did you start the podcast? I think it was like a year in. I don't have a time makes no sense anymore. So I don't know exactly when it was. But I, th- I think it had to be about a year, maybe a little over a year into being there. Okay. Yeah. Because it sounds like that was kind of transformational for you. Yes. As a podcast host myself, I completely empathize. Like it's so mm-hmm. amazing to get to talk to all these people and mm-hmm. pick their brains and yeah. we learn so much. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I think it wasn't just that I had that I got the opportunity to speak to those people and build that network. That of course has been I didn't think that that would happen or I didn't even that was not wasn't in my mind when I started the show, but having access to those people and continuing to have access to them is massive. But really I would say what it forced me to do was to think about what I was doing and what I was learning as I was learning it to come up with good questions. So if I was working on a project, I was struggling with something or I had an idea, I had to reflect on it in order to turn it into something I could interview somebody about. And that process, that forcing function of doing a show every other week for like two years meant that I had to be thinking about what I was learning and writing it down in a lot of ways. And so I was remembering and reflecting and learning better than I ever would have done without that. So even if it's not a podcast, I would say finding ways to reflect and to write and to learn as you're going would be my most biggest, like best recommendation for product. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the biggest thing 
that you recommend somebody do if they're trying to make that transition like you did from being an individual product manager to being a leader? I think the thing that helped me get there was, I mean, I don't know if I can even, I can boil it down to one one thing or two things or like a pithy three-part framework. <laughs> you know, I think at the heart of it, it was like I had this conviction that I could do the job and that I would be good at it. And if I could just get access to it, that then everyone would see that I would, you know, that the like, yes, this is the job for me. So I had that kind of motivation that was internal, you know, it wasn't sort of external that helped me get there. And then I think what I did was, again, finding a way to reflect on what you're learning, whether that's through teaching other people, whether that's through writing, whether that's through a podcast, I think that was invaluable. I also really spent time making sure that when I showed up in more senior meetings, that I showed up in a way that was at the level that I wanted to be at. And so example of that is like, if you're going to do some kind of presentation to your leadership or your skip level or something, spend time practicing. Like I would practice my presentations. I would make sure I was going to think through how the team was going to take in the information that I had. So I was writing and reflecting. I was practicing. And then I was being really honest about my goals and being really curious about what else I could do and always asking for feedback. So everyone knew what I wanted. Everyone knew the role I wanted to be in because I wasn't shy about saying that. And so I would ask for feedback like, hey, I think, you know, you did a really good job in that presentation. Like, how did you do that? Or, you know, I remember calling one of the co-founders once after a really bad meeting and I just asked him like, look, like I'm, I'm striking out on this project. I don't know what I don't know. Like, can you walk me through what that felt like for you? Can you tell me what you saw in me in that meeting and help me figure out what I need to do differently? And I think just like asking those questions is really hard and really humbling, but it's it's what helps you grow. Yeah, that's really brave to actually, you know, ask for feedback after something has gone poorly. And you're right, that's the time when you grow. Yeah, there might have been like a little bit of muting and then like quiet sobbing and then like unmuting and asking for your questions. Um, so I'm not going <laughs> to pretend like I was just you know, hardcore through the whole thing. But yeah. Yeah. It's good that they had that kind of culture there where you felt comfortable and safe with the people around you to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I always felt that way. I would say that's more about my own life. And, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard to feel that way when you're super junior or much more junior than somebody, um, even if they say that it's a safe space, especially, you know, I'm cis white woman. So I'm only sort of one factor of diversity. And I know it can be like 10 hundred times harder for people of other backgrounds to ask that type of question. But I just, I reached, at least in that specific day, I had been trying with this project that I knew was going to be a good idea for so long. And I just could not break through. And I just got to a point where I was like, I can't do another one of those meetings. So I got to just figure out what I can do to move past this. And that was the only thing I could think of. I know you were able to share with us what kind of feedback you got and how it helped. I think what I can share is that, first of all, the response was, I think what he said when I when he picked the phone was like, first, I'm so glad you asked this question. Like, this is what's going to make you grow and make you better is being willing to your point to like humble yourself and ask for feedback in a really vulnerable moment. And then he had a really good point how I had been assuming to at this for this specific project, I had been assuming too much knowledge and I didn't really like tell the story from start to finish on why I thought this was going to be a good investment. And I had assumed that some prior work that had been done was sort of accepted by everybody. 
And what I should have done is kind of start from scratch and like make this argument my own because I had kind of like inherited this project. Um, and so I should have just started from scratch and kind of recreated the argument and made it make sense for the time and the, and the people I was talking to and just sort of simplified it. So it ended up not being that challenging to fix. It was more just kind of making sure I had all the data in a way that made sense and was persuasive uh, for the team I was talking to. Yeah. So one of the things I'm hearing as a theme is communication and mm-hmm. presentation skills and mm-hmm. the ability to tell a story. Yeah. Did you have any particular tools or techniques that you use to learn those skills? Yeah, I think. And again, I think the reason why that's the theme that comes up is that because to me, and this is a very biased point of view to my who I am, but I don't think it's that hard to like build the stuff, right? Like there's so much content out there about like how to break down the problem, how to move from problem to discovery, how to, you know, use sort of the double diamond to like narrow in on the right sort of workflow and then how to get it built and like building the simplest complete product. Like all that stuff is out there. And I don't find that it's, it's just a matter of doing the work on that end. I think the trickier part specifically to your point about, you know, people who want to become product leaders, the hard part is not the building of the thing. The hard part is bringing along the people across the org with your plan and with what you're building. And so that's why communication comes up over and over again as an important skill, because as a product leader, your peers move from being the engineers and the designers that you're working with, and they become the other functional leaders at the company. And so it's you can't stick with the sort of comfortable EPD team that you know and love because those aren't your stakeholders, right? Your stakeholders become your founders. They become ops, sales, marketing, you know, for me now, the clinical team. So I have to think about, you know, how am I communicating with them and engaging them and bringing them along on the journey? And so that's why storytelling is so important because as with anything, the best way to get people bought into what you're doing is to tell a story and to hook them emotionally and to get them to really like understand because a really dry metric-based presentation might work for a certain type of person, but like what executive wants to sit through like an hour of metrics? Like no one really wants to do that. They want to get what you're doing. They want to have a story. They want pictures. And so thinking a lot about how to do that, I was lucky enough at Drift to work with a guy named Dave Gerhardt in marketing who is like unbelievable at this. This is like, I've never seen anyone who was so good at it. And he followed like a really simple framework of like situation, problem, solution, evidence, like CTA effectively. It was all from the presentation secrets of Steve Jobs is like some book um, and a bunch of other sort of marketing books. And you just follow that formula over and over again. You get good at it and you learn how to do it quickly. You learn how to do it persuasively. And then all of a sudden these things get a lot easier. Yeah. One of the things that struck me as you were talking is how much time as you're transitioning to more leadership, you must have spent in conversations and presentations. Yeah. A lot of times when I speak to earlier product leaders, they feel like that's not the work. They feel like, you know, I want to get back to doing my work. And I have to talk to them and be like, no, the communication is your work now. Like right. getting buy-in is your work. Yeah. I think that it's funny. You're totally right. And it's now, I mean, my situation right now is a little bit different because we're sort of starting something from the very, very, very early stages. But when I get to get into a prototype or I get to think about, you know, the roadmap, right? You know, get to look at a feature that has launched, like that's the sort of cherry on top in the fun moment. And that, to your point, that's not sort of the day-to-day. Yeah. 
So you mentioned, you know, a couple of hints about what you're doing now. Tell us more. You went from Drift to... To Charlie Health. Yeah. So I, bringing it all the way back to that second job I had out of undergrad and in consulting, what I really wanted to, I've always wanted to do was to get back to something mission driven. And just because the culture at that company, like I mentioned, was so powerful and it really felt like it it made your work matter, right? If you're going to spend so many hours at a company doing something, you know, you want your work to matter. But the challenge of being a consultant is I felt like I didn't have, like I didn't have a trade. I didn't have a functional role that I could fall back on at an org that wasn't a consulting firm. And so part of my journey into product was trying to figure out like, what is my trade? What is the thing that I know how to do that makes me valuable sort of as an employee? And again, maybe it's just me being a little bit conservative and wanting to be employable. But I viewed my time at TripAdvisor and the Drift and other startup I was at as like, let me go out and learn how to do this thing as well as I can so that I can go and do it for a mission-driven company. And so that was always my goal. And when I realized, you know, I, I had kind of done my tour at Drift and I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next and I really wanted to do something mission-driven and I met a bunch of companies and I just like, you know, didn't find anything that was really resonating with me. And then I, as a favor to somebody, met these founders who were building this company and at the time, I didn't know that they had had any funding. So I, you know, I was kind of like, okay, whatever, I'll talk to you. But you know, this isn't going to be real. And they were building this amazing program and product to help high acuity teens and young adults get the help that they needed. It's a really underserved market. There's not a lot of high acuity care for young people. So that's things like people who have just been hospitalized for suicide attempts, um, who have substance use disorder other, you know, depression and anxiety. So the idea that you could help kids at that age learn the skills that were going to serve them through the rest of their lives and deal with really, really serious issues, like it was amazing. And then I, you know, had a moment where the CEO said, you know, our goal is to reduce teen suicide rates in this country. And I was like, great, sign me up. I'm not going to find anything else that sort of motivating to me. And I, you know, being able to see the direct impact of the work that we're doing on specific human beings is like beyond anything. So yeah, I got, I, you know, got hooked by the mission, but the interesting part is that this company, they had built everything kind of without product engineering and design. And so it was a rare opportunity to come in and build a product team, engineering design team from scratch while knowing that we already had business model validation, which is interesting and rare opportunity and something that I had never done before. And I was really, really excited to do. Yeah. So how did they build it all without a product and engineering team? It's, you know, what's interesting about building in healthcare is that it's really common to build with tools. The default is not, you know, let's get the devs on this. The default is like, okay, what tool can we use that that solves this problem? And so a lot of healthcare companies, as I'm learning, healthcare tech companies are like a really tangly amalgamation of third-party tools and people and processes. So that's, Again, I'm not going to speak as if I know a lot about healthcare. I'm very new. I've only been here for three months. I'm still beginner mind. But that's what they focused on, creating the best curriculum in-house, figuring out how to create a virtual intensive outpatient program that drove results. And it didn't, you know, they didn't waste time building something until they knew they really needed to. Do you see any parallels between how they developed their mental health program and how a good product is developed? Yes. So I think... What's really interesting is that you could you could think about the situation that I walked into as 
start from scratch, white space, you get to do whatever you want. But I saw it as we had a year and a half of really incredible sort of organically created user research. And it was this really rich set of workflows and processes that the team had kind of created over time to help solve problems. And so it's almost like a team doing human-centered design on themselves without knowing that that's what they were doing. And so you can kind of look at all the ways that they do the things that they do as ways, as like little research projects. And so the interesting thing from a product and design standpoint is how do you take that and figure out, you know, what is core to this experience and what is just like a workflow that has been created because they couldn't figure out how else to do it or like there wasn't another workaround for whatever tool. And I think that's common in all product development, which is like observing your users and trying to figure out, you know, which workflow is the is the signal that you want to build on versus which workflow is like a gross workaround that you should get rid of. And so that's really interesting to me is thinking through what do you want to keep? What do you not want to keep? And how do you think about those workflows? So how do you figure that out? <laughs> Great question. Let's talk in a year. <laughs> you know, I think, and this is going back to the thread of product leadership and like, I think an interesting question that I've been asking myself or series of questions now that I am running the team. And what's interesting is you walk into a situation like this and you can say, okay, if you got to do it yourself completely from scratch, what would you do? What would you keep? What are your principles? What would you do differently? You know, what all the way from like, would you use Jira to like, how do you think about goals? How do you think about product principles? You know, what are your tenants as a team? Who do you hire? What's your org chart? Like you have to ask all those questions of yourself. So for me, the way that I make sense of that kind of like sprawling, super stressful set of questions, because it can be overwhelming, right? If you just like sat down and, and you had to just do all of that at once. The way I always think is like, okay, what is the business goal? What are we here to do? Really try to understand that, get a sense of the market, your competitors, where you're at, like all the context of the business. Then look at where is it right now? Really understand that what's currently happening, like the ground truth. And then look at both those sets of information and find the gaps. Find the gaps, find the big gaps, and then just like start with the biggest worst gap. And then you can kind of figure it out over time. And so that's that's my approach is like, if I understand where, where we're trying to go and when, if I know where we are, it almost always becomes pretty clear what you need to do to get there. And so I think that like, if you're rigorous about like using that kind of framework, you can reduce the amount of decisions you have to make and allow yourself to focus on what really matters. Cool. All right. So you're three months in and the company is almost two years old or so. Mm -hmm. So how many people work there now? I think we're just over 100. Oh, pretty big for that age. Yeah, but we're a provider, so we employ um, our clinicians full-time. Got it. Yeah, so the actual product and tech team is probably tiny. Mm -hmm. There's three of us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is an exciting stage to be at and to see the amount of you know, sort of user research that was organically done for just the purposes of them getting mm -hmm. the program started that you get to then dive in yep. and use must be exciting. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting and it's really fulfilling, I think, for me to, to go back through all of the things that I've learned over the past, I don't know, however many years and think about, okay, what have I done in this situation? Like, which thing is going to help me? And then where do I have just like massive gaps? Because I've never thought about a problem in a certain way. So I think going back to the podcast and the network, having 
built up a network of people that I can ask questions to is probably another thing that I would recommend to people who are thinking about a leadership role or who have recently moved into one. You can't do it all yourself. You have to have like a group of trusted advisors or groups of trusted advisors that you can reach out to. And so I have a couple of, you know, small, tiny three-person Slack workspaces. I have, you know, a couple of people that I can text. And those are the people that I go to when I have some kind of like thorny leadership question that I know have perspective. And so building that network has been something that I didn't really realize I was doing sort of intentionally, but now I realize has allowed me to do a lot of the things that I do faster. Yeah. And I think that some people unintentionally build a network, but not everybody actually continues to ping that network and ask them questions and use them as a resource. Yeah. So that's also a skill. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm super introverted. I don't love doing it. I find it to be really difficult, but at the same time, I've been really surprised over time at how generous people are with their time and how willing they are to answer questions. And you know, people have worked really hard to build up the skills that they have and to go through the experiences that, that, that they've gone through. And I find that they're often happy to tell you about it because, you know, they're proud of the work that they did and they want to share it. Or on the flip side, they went through something super painful and they would love to help other people avoid, you know, making that same mistake that they made. And so every time, you know, I ask a, a question like that, I'm, you know, of course, appreciative of the answer. But then I also try to to pay it forward. And when people ask me questions, if they ever do, I try really hard to answer them if I can, because that's, there's no, I, there's no sense in like hoarding the knowledge for yourself. You know, that doesn't help anybody. And I think it, it's hopefully my whole perspective has been the more I can share about my journey and what I'm learning, the more, the easier it makes it for somebody else to do this too. Cool. I like that. It's like your own mission as well. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, I think products in general, and, and maybe you touch on this in other episodes with other guests, but it's just one of those roles that for reasons that are silly, it is really hard to get into. And it's hard to get someone to give you that first stamp as a product manager. And it's for, for no good reason. It's a really hard job. And I think, you know, requires a certain set of skills, but I would love to open up access to it to more people from more backgrounds. And I try really hard to like pull people up with me and not, not like shut doors. So what are the, what are the qualities that you look for when you're either hiring or maybe thinking about helping somebody out? What do you see that says, okay, this is a person who's going to be a great product person? Yeah. Uh, These are probably all like cliche answers, but I look for people who are curious about getting to the right answer and who are not worried about having the right answer. I've definitely worked with people who need to be right and need to be the idea person. And that gets in the way of progress, I think. So sort of like intellectual curiosity, people who are resilient in the face of criticism or critique. So again, people who can kind of move forward, who can like recognize when things are going bad and are not sort of overwhelmed by that and who have a little bit of like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, that didn't go well. Like, let's talk about it. Storytelling and communication, empathy, EQ are all like critical product skills, I think. And then everything else you can kind of figure out. I don't think everyone has to be like perfectly analytical. Not everyone is going to be amazing at user research. Not everyone is going to be amazing at very designy products. So I don't have a strong point of view on like what you have to be able to do. But I think you need to have those sort of core characteristics of EQ and empathy and curiosity. Yeah, which are characteristics that are great for leadership of any kind, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you 
aren't saying a lot about the technical side. And I think you sort of alluded to maybe some challenges getting into product without having an engineering background. What has that been like for you? Yeah, I <laughs> I have a hard line on this. I I think it's so silly to require that stuff. It has no bearing on some whether someone is good at identifying problems and motivating teams to solve them. I think in some specific instances, specific experience would make you a better PM at a specific product. Like if your product is really technical and you have a background in whatever field, like I have a friend who just started a company and it's doing something crazy with machine learning that I can't explain to you because I I just purely don't understand it. But she doesn't have that background and she spent a lot of time like reading papers and like working with doctors to figure out this space. And yeah, maybe for her, it would be easier and make more sense if she had like a master's degree in data science. So that's the kind of thing where like you, you still don't need to have it. It might make your life easier if you do. But I think the basic requirements, you don't need those things. You can learn them on the job. And I also think that I'm glad you called them technical skills and not hard skills because I find that the quote unquote soft skills are 10 times harder to learn, to coach and to get good at than like, did you do the analysis right? Because there's a, that's a yes or no question, right? Like you can say, yeah, I did it right or I didn't. But did you suss out the feelings of your team? Could you figure out how to frame the problem in a way that motivated the engineers to solve it, even if it's like a boring billing problem? Like, have you created a roadmap that you can get your founders to buy in on? Like, that's hard. That's hard stuff. The technical things are like much simpler in comparison, in my opinion. I love what you said there. I think I feel pretty similarly. I don't believe engineering degrees are needed to be a product manager at all. I think some of the greatest product managers come from other fields. And there's so many different skills that go into being a great product manager. Yeah. And you're right. Some of them are easier to teach than others. Yeah. It's also like how arrogant to think that I need an engineering degree when I'm working with amazing engineers. Like my job isn't to be an engineer. My job is to figure out like, what do we need to build to move our business forward? Like that's my job. The head of engineering, it's their job to figure out the technical approach. So like, I think it's just a really weird thing to say that you have to be an expert in all of those things because, you know, you don't. And then to me, it's like, you should focus more on how do you hire and trust and build a trusting relationship with your design and engineering leaders rather than thinking that you have to be able to do all of it. Absolutely. Do you have any other areas that we didn't touch on that you're passionate about? So what's interesting about the, the job I'm in right now is that most of the people I work with have never worked with people in product management. So there's a lot of like stereotypical, like educating the team while you're also doing the work. And it's been amazing because the team is so excited and they love it and they think it's interesting, which is really cool. And there's a little bit of that, like, wow, that's magic, you know, which I think is really fun. And usually something that I reserve that I feel like engineers get more than PMs get. So it's kind of cool to have a little bit of that. But I've been thinking a lot about how to explain what it is to people. And I've been talking about it as like editing and curation. So I'm not sitting here kind of like coming up with weird ideas in a vacuum. Like my job right now is to curate and edit what we are going to do and the order in which we're going to do it. And those ideas are coming from every part of our company, from our clinicians, our admins, analysts, associates, like ops. Every team has good ideas on on what we should be doing and, and when and why. And so my job right now is much more of like a curator and editor um, and I've just been thinking about, about that a lot as like a way to think about the product leadership role is less follow my perfect vision into the future and more, you know, how do I 
curate and edit a vision that works for everybody. Cool. I really like that. I think the best leaders are people who really see their job as making sense of and amplifying what's coming from everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I love that word amplifying. I think that's exactly right. And yeah, just thinking about, you know, what what values do we want to have and who are we as a team? And it's a really cool opportunity if you ever, if people who are listening to this ever get a chance to kind of start a team from scratch. I'm not sure I'll ever do it again. It's really hard, but it's been really cool and really fulfilling to, to ask those questions. All right. Well, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Well, they can find me on Twitter. That's where I am the most, at Maggie Crowley. I love talking about products. I love getting into conversations about the best way to do things. My DMs are always open. So if people have questions, they can they can find me there. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, Holly, thanks for having me. It's really fun to, to be on the other side of these conversations. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. A lot less work, I will admit. <laughs> the Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high-growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.